Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Alicia Shanice Reviews. I am your host, this is your girl Shanice, checking in with you with another episode. Today we are talking about Narcos. We made it through season one of my um, Mexico, Narcos Mexico, which I love every episode of that. I'm really into it. And as promised, I've been talking about, let's talk about these two documentaries. I hope you guys check them out. Narcos Wars is on Hulu. It's episodes two. It's titled Mexico's First Cartel. And then also I told you guys to check out The Last Narc, which is on Amazon Prime. So I will try not to make this too long, but I do want to discuss it in its entirety. Um, the first one was just 42 minutes long, so I think we can recap that really fast. Um, the last narc was a little bit longer. It was four hours, um, not a total of four hours. They're just broke up into four episodes, like a little mini series, like about 40 minutes, but really good. You do have to pay attention if you don't speak Spanish because most of it, a lot of it is in Spanish, so it's a lot of reading really deep documentary um don't forget you can always follow me on my social media platforms my facebook is alicia shanice my ig is alicia shanice as well and if you are into music tune in to my playlist on spotify most of them are titled under shanice loves you can follow me on there um also follow me on my spotify or however you listen to me because my platform is on a couple of different sites but hit follow and check me out weekly i am um recapping power each week Uh, we will start to talk about snowfall in the near future as soon as we're done with this so i hope you guys do enjoy um i really love documentaries i do want to talk about more and more i already have the next documentary that we will cover and that is on netflix it's titled crack that's a really good one and i also have one more um, I just have to find out where is it at because I know it's not on Netflix and it's not even on YouTube anymore. So let me just do it some digging around. So I'll be able to tell you guys where to search for that for. And I will not keep you guys this long tonight. I'm just going to recap both very briefly. Um, don't forget, I just dropped my power book three. Um, episode five it is out tonight as well so if you have time check that out and if you don't have time check it out tomorrow and let's get into the show name is Shanice and she's the one her name is Shanice and she's the one Hey guys, we're going to cover Narco Wars first. That appeared on Hulu. That was season one and it was episode two. It was titled Mexico's First Cartel. So that's what we're going to cover first. I hope you guys checked it out. And if you haven't, it's cool. Listen to the pod and then go check it out. It's really good. Like if you follow, especially if you're one of my Narcos um, listeners, like if you follow my breakdowns of that, it goes hand in hand with the real story. Um, it also opens up and it says today around 90% of illegal drugs entering America are trafficked by the Mexican cartels. And back in the 70s and 80s, that just wasn't the case. Most of it came from, most of the weed came from the Guadalajara cartel in the 70s and 80s, but most of the cocaine was from Colombia. And now it's 90% of all illegal drugs are entering our um, traffic by Mark, um, Mexican cartels, they say. Um, <clears throat> this is they the way how they put it in a documentary is the reason why they're able to provide all of the access over here is due to corrupt soldiers and police, and they all provide security for the cartels. And in the 70s and early 80s, Mexico was the main source of weed. America's like they considered them potheads. And most of the weed came from Sinaloa. And then um, this is just a fun fact right here. When you watch the movie Blow, um, like I said, I'm into all of this stuff. So I watched all of the movies and most of the docs. Um, 
when you watched the movie Blow before he started with cocaine and, you know, met Diego, who we later learned was Carlos later from the Medellin cartel. Um, remember, he went to Mexico and they were calling it. They were looking for grass. So they started off selling grass and then he got, you know, that's what he was arrested for. And he went to Mexico to get all of that. And who knows, you know. Where where he could have got it from? It could have been somebody from the Sinaloa cartel, you know. That's where most of them were come, where, where most of the weed was coming from at that time. And he started off in the seventies, and it was not until later that he looked up with, hooked up with Carlos later in prison and was introduced to Pablo Escobar. So it says like it's a guy in there and he is a DEA agent and he says like Mexico cartels are similar to what you would say of like Sicily's Italian mafia with the structure on how like their structure was of like, you know, it's many mobsters, it's many mafias, but like from the Sicily part, their structures are very similar on how they were put together. The DEA was supposed to work with federal Mexican police at the time the cartel was moving to Guadalajara. And we learned in this doc that Rafa Carroll, he was like the weed king. And we did see that in, in Narcos Mexico, but in a documentary, it goes way more in detail. And it says like <clears throat> Rafa Carroll, he was on top of the world. Like in Mexico, narcos in the show, you know, they can only show us so much. They have 10 episodes to break down years of history. And then they have to like watch what they put in there. They have to make it more interesting, even though like this whole story, they didn't have to dramatize it a bit. It was just crazy. And in there, it kind of made it seem like Rafa, all he did, knew was to do was to grow the weed. But the brilliance of this man in his 20s, by the time he was 28, he was already a billionaire. And, you know, this he was like known as the weed king. And in the show, they didn't so much show us that. And they, they always say he was so smart to have limited education. But to be honest, a lot of if you look at a lot of drug dealers or someone in a game, they're more smarter than most CEOs, to be honest. Like you, you're, you if you're hustling and you make it into like you're the man, the man, you're what these guys were. It's nothing dumb about you. Like they could they were basically running their own General Motors. Like you look at Pablo. He's bringing in billions of dollars. And like they say, with limited education, you know. <clears throat> It's always uh, this this documentary was really good. Um, it was more from like the DEA's version and the police version of it. Um, I did like that when you see someone from the family in there, it always makes it more authentic. Like, OK, they got the family stamp. So, you know, anybody could put a documentary together. But we seen we seen uh, Kiki's wife in there. So it was good to see her. And I like listening to the way that. She like breaks everything down and tells us the story as well. <clears throat> DEA said that they pretended to be like they were sophisticated, but they were just thugs. Like that's how they looked at the Sina the Sinaloa cow. They called them like the Sinaloa cowboys per se. Um, I will say that might have been the case for Rafa Carroll, but from I've watched multiple documentaries on these guys. I've listened to multiple interviews for, you know, police people who were on the police force and, you know, people who were actually in a cartel. And from Miguel Felix's point of view, he was an all businessman. Like, we'll get more into his background, but Miguel Felix, he was we see why they called him the godfather on even how it was his plan basically to bring the federation together and bring it was no cartel before that so he brought everybody together we also see the real Jaime uh Kai Kendall I think that's how you pronounce his name he was Kiki's boss and we see him a lot in Narcos Mexico and he actually retired in 1989 they say so he was like from 1973 to 1989 so he retired shortly after all of this happened it was only on for about four more years
The three agents, um, it was like three of them, you know, three agents that were in the show. We see the other guy who came from Mexico City. He's in here as well. Um, so it was just like three agents over there as well. Like the very small crew, very small. Let me see. So with the other three agents, the reason I believe Kiki Camarena was able to get more in and more information is because he was Mexican and he fitted in. Like he knew all the street slang. He could go like he was undercover as well. So like when you send the other DA DAs over there and they were like white guys, they stuck out more and they really didn't know a lot of Spanish. So they weren't going to get any information. We see that even in um, Narcos Colombia, like they didn't trust Steve. Steve Murphy because they you know they look at us like they looked at them like gringos that's what they called them gringos and they knew that that was basically the police you know so with Kiki Camarena he fit in he, he he was Mexican he spoke Spanish fluidly he knew like all of their slang so he was able to get more in because of who he was and his background um, we learn in 1982, the DEA learns of Rafa Carroll Quintero and how he is setting up all his new plant marijuana plantations across northern Mexico. And then Kiki, you know, he goes looking for them when this time they're still more in Sinaloa. The farm was located in like the middle of a desert. And in September 1982, they seized the first field. It was like six, eight feet, six to eight feet. The marijuana plants were about 200 acres. And this was the biggest farm that um, the DEA had seen at that time. He was 28, 30 years old. and He was already a billionaire. Like, <laughs> like, that's crazy. You know, he was like a billionaire. And then, you know, two years after they busted him, they're still continuing searching for more evidence. And by this time they're in guadalajara and they built an even bigger farm a bigger weed plantation and this one was way bigger it was um like like i said they were running like their own general motors they had more than five thousand workers it was at 1344 acres like this was just crazy and this was when they were only dealing with well i'm sure they were dealing with more at the time but this is just the marijuana part and this one was called the Buffalo Ranch. It was six times larger than the previous plantation. And it was just too big to keep a secret. And they ended up getting that one as well. And they kind of, um, you know, like they say in the documentary, they kind of went the back way and they didn't go to the police. And they used the military and the federal judicial police. So they didn't use the ones who they were, you know, most of the state police worked for the cartel. So that's why they were able to get away with everything at that time. And it was like 4,000 tons of marijuana that they seized. Um, they said in a documentary that the quantity on the black market could have cost like cost them like um, $1 billion in pesos. And that's money over there. The raid cost... Um, Carol Quintero and the other cartel over two billion dollars. So that was a that was a big loss that they took. And then luckily at that time it was only in marijuana because we learned in the series that you know that was theirs. Those was those that was the, even you know it was their farms or whatever. But just imagine if that would have been the cocaine that they were transporting for the Columbia. So. Like I said, this, these documentaries, they're so deep. It's kind of emotional to watch because it was so sad. Um, just everything was just really, really sad. Um, and then after they did that, because, you know, in the show, they made it seem like it was just one, one, a one-time bust and they were just mad and went after, you know, Kiki. But their fields was rated more than once. And then after that, in um, Arizona in 1984, that's when they did have their cocaine and trucks, and that's when they busted them, the trucks and the guys in there, and they found out they were working with the, that's when they, you know, at first they thought it was just weed. So that's when they learned that they were working with the Colombians as well, and they 
they had cocaine in there and they busted them in Arizona. So, you know, it's one thing when you're messing with their farms, but now dealing with the Colombians, they have to pay for that as well, you know, because they have to go through them. We go and then we see in a documentary that one of the deputy attorney generals of Mexico is talking and he breaks down why Miguel Angel Felix uh, Gallardo was the boss of bosses. He was smart. He was in control. Um, he, he was he was like the head. And even though we know Rafa and Donito, they were the bosses, too. But Miguel Felix was just something different. It was his idea to put the cartels together and like that was like a really big deal because that had that had never been done before most of them before that were already at war with each other they didn't like each other and he managed to bring all the plazas together out of one like i don't think people realize how powerful that was and he had the structure and um they touch on this in season two and we haven't made it today so i don't want to jump too far ahead but like after he left and was all the way gone. You know, he was still running stuff from prison for a while. But when he was gone, it seemed like that's when everything just kind of got the way it is now. But when he was in there, it was more structure and ran more smoothly. Like this did happen with the bus, but it was ran a lot more smoothly than it was. And by this time, when they busted the um, the trucks, it was like, you know, Rafa wanted revenge on, you know, because that was a lot. And then not only with your marijuana plants getting lost now, going after the cocaine. Um, and then with the money that they were seeing from the cocaine, not only, you know, you have to deal with the Colombians if you lose their product. But what they got from Colombia, it was like for what cocaine sales they said on the street for at America are worth more than 24 billion a year they were bringing in like that's crazy so they were bringing in way more and then in a documentary they show on how they was getting the cocaine ready and they even have like special ways that they do it for like the rich people they'll kind of package that up they'll clean it more I'm like y'all washing clean cocaine they'll sell it for like 150 dollars a gram they'll do flavors They'll put, um, the guy was saying how they put vitamins that are good for you, that, for your brain. And I'm like, wow, really? <laughs> and he was showing how they were getting it together because this was all in the doc. If you guys watched it and he was like, yeah, we put vitamins that's good for your brain. Kind of vitamins you buy from the store, we put it in a cocaine. We do flavors. Some people like flavors. So, you know, that costs more. We'll do strawberry or grape. And, you know, as much as I've done a lot of research and watched a lot of docs and everything, I had never heard of that myself. So that was like, you learn something new every day. And I had watched this documentary before and it might've just slipped my mind or I might just didn't pay attention to that part, but that was crazy. That was really crazy. And it was saying like how 80% of cocaine used in America is smuggled by Mexico cartels now. And then if you go back to the eighties and how we recover on Pablo, that just wasn't the case. So it, everything has just changed. And um, during the early eighties, when this was the Guadalajara cartel, like now it says that they, 80% of cocaine is smuggled, but back then it was only 17%. So that was really interesting to see on how everything has changed over the years. And we see the real Ed Heath. And, you know, it's always good when you watch the documentaries and you kind of put a face to on who they were portraying them in the show. And he was the head of DEA in Mexico City from like 83 to 89. So it seemed like after... A lot of stuff happened with the case with Kiki Camarano. A lot of them end up retiring. You know, a lot of the guys who worked at were end up they end up retiring after that. A lot of them um, who were on there, you didn't see them really past eighty nine. Um, and then it says like in February nineteen eighty five. Remember in Narco's show, uh, Mika wakes up like at four in the after four in the morning, and she's calling Jaime and and. She's in this documentary, and it was really good to see her and hear her story. Um, she was saying like 6 a.m. when she woke up and he she seen he wasn't there. She knew something was wrong, and that's when she called the DEA office. And they say that he went missing around 2.30 p.m. He was like abducted by four men, 
And the same day, the pilot was kidnapped as well. That was really sad. Um, they showed the, in the documentary, they showed the real footage. Um, they showed how the airport, after, you know, Rafa escaped, they showed the real airport footage. We seen, like, the real detectives who let him go. Um, they they said on how it was, like, a 20-minute standoff. The chief of police was there, and that's the one who took the bribe. It was, like, a – it was just crazy. This documentary had me, like, are you serious? Like, I've watched it before, but, you know, have you go back and you watch something else, and you watch it for the second time, you're like, oh, I didn't catch that the first time. So I was catching more details that I hadn't caught before. And then when you watch the show so much and you're like, okay, I see where they, I see where they got that from and that, like, you know, it's just really crazy. And they like with the standoff, you know, over here in the U S you just not finna get away with that like that. And it was just like a standoff where the cartels had their guns, the police had their guns and he took the bribe right in front of them. He's like, they're like, what are you doing? Because they had been following these guys for so long. They had pictures. They knew who Rafa was. And he like, look, that's DFS. That is not who you think it is. And they were unable to do anything because they were like guests in their country. So they weren't able to do anything. And to me, that I liked it how um, Narcos Mexico kind of broke that down more. And when they did Colombia, it made it seem like the DEA agents over there were able to do way more than they would. But we can't do anything like when you're guests in our countries and you're just going over there. You have certain rules you have to follow. You don't. You can't go out and you can't arrest anybody. So that's why Narcos uh, Colombia that that was a little bit very dramatized out on how they showed uh, Steve Murphy and Pena talking about how they were going in the communas and doing all of that. So um, after he was kidnapped in February 1985, they did find him four weeks later. They found the body uh, him and his, him and his pilot. And I liked it in the doc on how they showed the real footage. You've seen, the, the, um, you seen everything. Like you've seen on how the media was covering it. You've seen... The, the real news footage, you've seen the, them taking his body. Then you've seen clips that they had used from Narcos as well. It was really, really sad. And the man on the documentary was an ex-cop, and he was related to the police chief, and he worked for the DFS. And the DFS is equals to, like, what F, the FBI over here. And we've seen how most of them who were in the law office they were all related just about and they all worked for the cartel and i thought that was very interesting and that broke down a lot of why everything went down it, the way it was and you know they go on to talk about how rafa was just so angry because the plantations were basically his like he was like the king and he was so angry after that second raid and then not only that they were entering into colombia and then they seized the truck in Arizona. So they just kept getting hit after hit. And that just shows what a dedicated and wonderful DEA agent Kiki Camarena was because, I mean, he was hired to do a job and he was doing his job. And, you know, they say how he was just like a really serious guy. Um, I think the guy who played him did a good job. But when you watch the documentary, you just wish they would have kind of went more, showed the seriousness of him. Like they showed how he was serious in the show, but he was always like really angry. He did a good job. I'm not knocking that. But when you watch the documentary, it just reminds you of how surreal this was. I mean, of course, it was surreal. I don't want to use the wrong words. But just on, you know, how deep the story is. It's really sad. It's really, really sad. Um, so after Rafa escaped in April 1985, he was caught in Costa Rica and he was arrested and brought to Mexico. And I like how they show the real footage of him being arrested. Um, they show how he was being interviewed and how he was talking. And then right after that, they brought in Don Nito. And then Felix was still free for four years. He didn't get arrested for four years later. And 
that was when a new president was elected and he decided to take some action. So, you know, he was he didn't really have that protection anymore like he had before with the being a new election and getting a new president in there. And we'll talk more about that when we get into season two. This is more just the docs. If you guys watched it, I'm sure you see it. But we're going to see uh, Felix Miguel's um, downfall when we cover season two. The guy who plays him, Diego, he did a really good job. A really good job with the mayorisms and everything he had. He did a really good job. And he said on when he got done playing it, he was like he was kind of tired of it because that's like so much drawn energy out of him. And I can believe that because like this story is very deep, very sad. And uh, just to play it and to get in your role, I imagine how that one would be hard. And then it's not like a movie. It's like a show and you're doing 10 episodes and double takes and that I can imagine what it can do to your energy. But he did a really good job. And from like the clips that we see of the real Felix Miguel, um, like he got those mannerisms down pat, really down pat. So yeah, that one was really good. And they say on how he was like going to, he was going to college and he was going to college for business. And we see how he was so business mind on how he did put the cartels together and how he had everything structured. He was also a state police officer. And we seen that on the show as well. Um, they showed a little bit of that, but he was really a state police officer and he was like a bodyguard for politicians as well. And they showed a little bit of that in the show. So we see that that wasn't dramatized out and he was really all of those things and all of those went hand in hand. And that's why he had all those connections he had. He knew how to he went to school for um, for business. So he that's why he had everything running so smoothly like a business. On his end, he knew how to get in, get in with the police heads because he came from the police, and he he knew how to touch hands with powerful politicians because he was bodyguarding for them. And you know, in that world, your bodyguard—that's who's around you all the time. So he knew who to rub shoulders with and who to talk to. Um, so when they did capture him, it had to be like a complete secret because he had too many connections and it was only three people in on that arrest when um, they ordered for him. Like it, it had to be a very small team because he had too many connections. And if it would have got out, he would have been able to escape. He was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Ralpha Carroll was sentenced to 40 years in prison, but he was released on in 2013 for an illegal sentencing. They had did some, they found something to corrupt when they arrested him, but in the U.S. he's still on FBI's 10 Most Wanted. And Don Nito was sentenced to, I want to say, 37 years as well, but he was released on house arrest in 2016. That was a really good documentary. It was only 42 minutes long. I did like um, like that. So, yeah, like I said, if you've been checking out our Narcos reviews, it's always good to watch a good doc to go with the show to see what went hand in hand, and that was the one off of Hulu. And then we get into The Last Narc. <laughs> The last narc is emotional for me. Um, this documentary was so chilling. It was very good camera angles. Very good. Um, it, it was very deep. Very sad. The music, you know, the effects they use. It was just a really explosive documentary. I have to say on all of them, out of all the documentaries I've watched, and I've watched a lot, this one here, it ranks to the top. Like, it, it was just very chilling. You know, when you watch something and you're just like, wow. It was very emotional for me. Um, the guy who did this, his name was Hector Boreas, and he's also done a lot of interviews as well. Um, he did a really good interview on YouTube. So if you want to check that out as well, it goes with the documentary when he's talking about everything. That's on um, 
Valuetainment's channel. He he does a really he does a lot of dope interviews. So if you're in a YouTube, check out um Hector Boreas on Valuetainment. He's interviewed people like Sammy the Bull. He got like the first really good interview with Sammy the Bull. That interview had me in chills too. And we'll cover you know the mob too. I I I get off in all them shows as well. Um, Goodfellas, you know that's based off a true story. Casino, that's loosely based off a true story. Um, we got all of them, so I, I will definitely get into that too. And then with the mob, with the John Gotti, and them is so many documentaries on that. So we'll get off into that too. But like, if you're into that, follow Value Tamer's channel. And this another guy as well. He covers a lot of stuff like this as well. I'll have his name for you guys next time. I can't think of it right now. I'll look it up in a minute. Um, but he breaks down a lot on his channel as well and the nart last nart opens up it says journalist charles bowden uncovered the most explosive explosively story in the history the war on drugs it, in it involved cia a mexican drug cartel and notorious murder and he died before he could finish so a lot of this, I'm guessing, is the story, and that because that's how it opens up. And we see that in 1973, that is when Nixon created the DEA. And the first episode is titled Five Cops and is covering um, Ramon Lira stories, Horge Gotti's story, and Ren Renee Lopez's story. And then we got Hector Perez on whose documentary it was. And we also see um, Kiki's beautiful wife, Mika Camarano, in there as well. So, like I said, when you see somebody, when you see them do uh, unauthorized documentary, you're kind of like, uh, is, is this correct? You know, does this have the family's approval? You see it happen all the time, uh, especially, like, I'm a really big fan of, like, Whitney Houston. And after she passed away, so many people did unauthorized documentaries of her. Her family was so upset. So, you don't know to believe them or not. Because it could just be people trying to make some money or not. But when you see um, people in the docks, it makes it way more authentic. And we've seen his wife. we um seen people who worked for the DEA and hold very high positions and retired talking. So that made it more authentic as well. Um, and she mentions on how they were really set to leave Guadalajara in two weeks before the kidnapping so in two you know this in two weeks he would have been out of he would have been gone anyway and the investigation would have been over on his part so that's really really sad when you think about it we see president reagan uh that was real footage and it shows him calling her and offering his deepest apologies that was really deep and i'm like wow they had the real audio of that of uh, President Reagan calling her you know offering his deep apologies and saying that they're going to do everything that they could do and like that's really good I do want to cover the Reagan documentary too so we'll get to that later on I know we have so much we're doing we're doing the narcos then we're going to do snowfall and then I have the crack documentary as well so we do have a lot of docs but we're I do want to cover that as well the Reagan documentary in the Reagan documentary, that'll go more with when we cover Snowfall. So that'll be good timing as well. So upcoming up next, the next doc we'll cover is Crack. But moving right along, when Donito and Rafa was arrested at first, um, Mexican um, politicians and, you know, the, gov the Mexican government, they refused to e extradite them. And that was a big deal when we were covering Colombia. That was basically Pablo's whole fight on the war that he caused. It was to fight extradition. That's the whole reason of that. He could have he could have got over being and you know he he did his thing with that, but he could have got over you know getting kicked out of politics because you know he was running for congressman. But when they talked about extraditing them he always said he preferred a grave over extradition over in a u.s prison and it's like if he would have had the backing that they had in this cartel he would have went you, you, you who knows where pablo would have been like pablo was powerful but what makes the the mexican uh cartels way more powerful than 
the Medellin cartel and the Cali cartel is even though they, they had connections because they had connections as well. It was real footage when they used to trail those trucks and stuff of like powerful politicians and judges coming and visiting Pablo when he was in prison and partying with them, they're gambling or whatever. But and the Guadalajara cartel and the rest of them, they are really protected by their government. And when they were refusing to extradite them, they were, they had all they wanted. They said Harafa used to leave out of prison, go out to eat. He was able to carry a gun around his cell. He was able to have women come in there. So it was like, you know, yeah, we have him locked up, but he was over there. Basically they had the world and, you know, it sounds unbelievable, but even when we, when we did cover uh, Narcos Colombia, they actually had their prisons like that too. Pablo could come. Pablo got to build his own prison. He got to have people come in and come out. And we didn't cover that doc yet. I'm, um, I do want to cover that as well. Um, the, the, the war on Colombia, Pablo's war on the government. We're going to cover that as well. But yeah, he was able to do whatever he wanted to too. But like, you know, in today's hindsight, it just sounds like unrealistic like yeah that's just something on tv like no they they were in prison but they could come and go as they wanted they could have as many visitors how many girls in there they could carry their own weapons they pablo picked his own sicarios to be the bodyguards and the security guards in the prisons like that was crazy and it had in a doc that in 1987 35 million were um 35 million dollars worth of cocaine entered the US from Mexico City every 24 hours and meanwhile the Mexican government refused to extradite them so it just shows you on how powerful they were even when they were in prison and at that time in 87 Miguel Felix he was still free at the time and it, uh episode 1 just kind of introduces you to the cops we see uh the three cops who were involved in the abduction of kiki camarano we see they were involved with the cartels they're openly admitting it in a documentary one of them was like a state police the other guy i want to say he was a homicide cop and they even had their boss in there and they're in there you know just telling everything like like i said this, this documentary was bone chilling it was really really interesting and when i watched it the first time like i said i tried to watch because, you know, you're on adrenaline after you watch uh, Narcos Colombia. Narcos Colombia was so perfect. And you want to just more and more. And then when I went to Narcos Mexico, I was like, oh, I'm not really feeling this show on Netflix. And then when I seen the steam from the documentary and I watched the documentary, that's what pulled me into the show even more when you know a backstory of it. Like this, this uh, doc was really bone chilling. And we go to episode, so episode one, it uh, introduces the cops. They're telling their story. It's the five cops, which is Kiki Camarano is one of them. They're telling his story. We got Hector Bereas. It introduces us to him and why he decided to make the doc. And then we have the three cops who were involved in this and they were from Mexico. So it's just basically the first episode introduces them. And the second episode, that is the blood of the corn. And it's more of Hector Berea's story and selling why he was so involved. He was like, so the guy who made this documentary, he was like a really honored DEA agent. He had all type of awards um, from the White House, like top DEA administration. He was like a really, he was in the, the field for a long time. I think he came in a year before Kiki Camarano, um, 73. He was like the first or second year of it being a, um, created and he retired he retired in 1996 so he was in there for a long time and he was in the he was in the longest gun battle in mexico in history it was over a two-hour bloodbath and a shootout and he was involved he left came back like he was just like 
you know, it was crazy on, you know, and he was honored. He took his job serious. He loved it. And he, um, he's telling you why he became a DEA agent because, you know, he's, he looked up to his father. His father was his hero and he had never seen his father cry before due to, um, until, you know, his brother was addicted to drugs. And around this time, even with, um, like I said, we'll cover the mafia as well. But Michael, Michael Francis, who was like a commander in, he was a made man. He was like one of the head guys in the Colombo family. And he talked about how much he hated drug use. So uh, back then, a lot of those guys, they, they hated drug use because they seen what it did to their families. And that's what Michael Francis said. That's what saved him for not wanting to get involved in drugs. And this is what made this guy want to become a DEA agent and believed in what he did. And it shows his mother. And, you know, that was really interesting like just seeing how she prophesized a lot and you know how she would read her tarot cards and she was telling him she sees blood and all that so she's seen all that before he um went and then he got into that gun battle that like i said the whole documentary is very interesting it's not no skip this part is boring like even like from his family's point of view on how he tells the story his mom tells the story is really really good um if you guys haven't checked it out please check it out i promise it's good um a moment so you know they kind of break that down of his background and then it shows on how after he was awarded everything after his gun battle on how the head of the director of the DEA came to him and asked him that he want to be the super supervisor of the Operation Leander. And we were introduced to Operation Leander in the last episode of Narcos. We see that they're creating an operation and it's going to be like a secret and they're going to go down there and try to find out who was involved in the murder. And we see that it was really an Operation Leander and he was over it in, in 1989. So the first place he went was, he says, to Tijuana. And that's when he met George Gordy. He was the state police. He was the and a bodyguard of Rafa and Donito. And then he met Rene Lopez second. Um, he was the homicide cop and he was also in a car of the kidnapping and then we meet their boss Raymond Lira and then we see um, a real picture of Sammy remember Sammy who was in the show and he was like the cartel lieutenant so I like documentaries after you watch something as well and you see a face with a picture so that was really you know interesting um we see, um, he says that near that he interviewed all of them separate. So none of them were in the same room. They hadn't seen each other for years and all of their stories added up. And most of them was like worked for, especially for Don Nito. And the way how they described Don Nito, he was the total opposite of what we've seen in the show Narcos. They say he was nice when he wasn't, you know, off drugs or whatever. He was very old school. And um, on one of the, when I was telling you guys to check out the Valuetainment interview he did, um, he says on, you know, how they used to call him the old man. If the old man was out today, he wouldn't be buying shit on how it is now like how it's all out of control now he like he was old school the way how they did everything it was very structured so uh, how it crazy it is now wouldn't be happen like that and he was more old school and rafa was more like a teenager to them so they always call him like the kid because he was much younger than don Nito and miguel felix so they kind of looked at him like you know the young one um it was really crazy. I just, that's all I can say. This this doc, this is my second time watching it, and it, it you show how powerful it is because like it's just so sad. Um, two of the guys uh, who were there doing the whole thing and witnessed everything, they're giving their testimony. So it's crazy, and it goes more in the detail of saying like how politicians were so involved with this like it gets to showing you real pictures and then like some of these pictures of the guys who were involved like the heavy politicians they're in pictures with with, with president reagan at the time in the 80s go you know that's that's crazy like they have pictures with them with the cartels and then you picture them you put them with the 
the president, some of these were the ex-presidents. They were very, very high. One of them was ex-president, the president at the time. Some of them were in the pictures with Reagan. So it just shows you how deep this got. And one of the bodyguards said how Rafa said he, he was okay. Like him and the president, they were on like first first name basis used to meet up like every two months he would send him kilos of cocaine like they had a whole system going on you know and they, they mentioned that in the doc and and it shows us that it was actually 1981 where he built the largest plantation in history like the ranch that they showed in the show was oh my god this this ranch was so big and it was the biggest in history to today that they've seen um, of what he had with, with his marijuana plantation. And it was generating over $150 million a year. Um, the rate cost them over a billion dollars. And then it go, gets to like, just talking about how much money they were bringing in and how much they, that lost from that rate that they did. And it, you know, I like how they broke it down to where like in the show, it just made it like it was just a one time thing, how it was twice. And this is what really pissed, especially Raph off, as they say in the doc. Um, also, um, when what made it more comfortable, because it wasn't like you could just go around and just kidnap a, a, a government official like that and just get away with it. But they say on what made them feel more comfortable of what how they could do it and get away with it is that it was already missing Americans over there. Um, it shows in there it was four Jehovah Witnesses who were going like from door to door and they were kidnapped the women were raped and beaten in front of their husbands and they were buried and missing over there. And then we had the two men, uh, they were two tourists and that was in the show and they were from Texas. And it happens at uh, it happened at actually it was Rafa who owned that seafood restaurant. And they showed us that in the show. And that was just very sad to see like their real pictures to see like the Jehovah witnesses pictures and, and know like, you know, it's one thing when you're watching the show, but when you see these people's faces and see that they were really dismembered and, and brutally, not only just murdered, but tortured, it's extremely sad. And they had got away with that and nobody really came looking. And that's probably why they thought they could get away with that and, and not be a big thing. Um, they, they were, they were tortured and, you know, no person should have to go through that. And they go on there and in the dock and they don't play the tapes, but they show the writing from the tape of what was said. That was very sad to read of how he was begging for them to stop hitting him. Um, they show on how they even bring up on how even the, the Americans who were over there just touring how their bodies were decapitated and dismembered as well. But not only that, the pilot and Kiki Camarano, their bodies were brutally tortured, like brutally, brutally tortured. No, no humane should have to go through that. Um, it showed in there on even on how after they killed the two guys who were touring over there, they assumed that they were DEA agents, but they were just tourists just going in there to get something to eat. Uh, they celebrated just shooting their AK-47s in the air. Um, we see one of the DEA intelligence officers who's one of the directors, he's retired and he's in there, you know, telling his story as well. And they said to, all together, it was like seven Americans who had went missing. So at that time, they did think that they could just do what they want and nobody would care. And nobody probably knew what was going on until they put everything together. Because this is back in the 80s. So they didn't have everything like they got now. And it took more time. And it depended on what jurisdiction you were in. Everything, you know, this jurisdiction had this. This one had this. This precinct had this evidence. So if it was so separated... They didn't they couldn't match all of that back then. So they might have just think these were people who went missing. But come to find out it was all from like the same cartel who were committing these brutal crimes. And then it happened with the DEA agent and the pilot. And that brought more notice and more media coverage. And it was just showing 
how a lot of these, when it goes to episode three, um, it showed the transcripts um, on the were from the cassette tapes where that were actually at the kidnapping and how it was considered like classified DEA sensitive information. Um, I was amazed that they could get that out there like that. This whole thing is is really chilling. Um, the guys talked about how um, when we watched the show, it looked like it might have been just a few people, you know, a few people from the DFS, uh, the guy who was doing the torturing, and a few people in there. But they said um, when all of this incident happened, it was like 50 to six people, 50 to 60 people in this home. It was like police, politicians, narcos. Um, they talked about how his body was, his skull was cracked. Um, his teeth was knocked out. Um, he was burned with cigarettes. They drilled his body. Um, they violated his anal parts. Like it was just very, very sad. Um, they have his pilots uh, real pictures in there and we see pictures of when they did the raid and you know him and kiki camarano together uh his name was alfredo zavala and he was the mexican pilot um who flew over and when they did the surveillance and took pictures and he was kidnapped a few hours after they kidnapped kiki camarena um it shows us on how powerful the DFS was. Like we knew they were powerful, but they were like, they, they call it discretion, federal desagrad. I could be pronounced. I know I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but they were a Mexican secret police force and they were created by the CIA. So that's on how they even came along. Uh, it's another guy in the dock and he was the lead pro uh, prosecutor in uh, Camarano's case and he's retired as well. He was in there talking and, you know, he talked about how uh, he was Kiki Camarano was tortured for 36 hours and, you know, he fell into a coma. And then when he was fell into a coma, he was crushed in the head with a skull with like a bar. That was very sad. Um and that was nothing unlike how they showed us in the show. Um, and after they were able to not like not to find anything, they show us on how they show real footage on how they shot the McDonald, they how they shut down the border, uh, and that put like pressure on the government. And that they gave a raffle first, and then we see the real um, guy who they portrayed in the show. I guess his name, his real name was Armando. Prevan, they show his real picture and that was actually the same guy that they showed in the show when they showed the real footage so that was him as well um they show how he looked and how everybody was looking at him when he let rafa escape that plane and like i was telling you guys when we were watching the show and covered it i was like as unrealistic as that scene that happened but i thought that they had said before like i said you always have to watch a documentary a second time to get it and you know he like he got the busting his gun up in the air, but he really popped champagne and was like, bring better guns next time. But still like that just doesn't happen. You just have a standoff with somebody and let them escape. Um, and it shows that like when we, um, when they found their bodies, they were actually moved. So they, they buried them right after they killed them. And then they went and dug their bodies up again and they moved them far out. And that's when they got the tip and they found them that day. Um, and after that, when the, they closed down the border and the Americans, the U.S. got the cover and everything in their media and they had all the heat on them, the politicians basically abandoned, abandoned all of them. And then that's it was like 26 of them that got arrested with Don Nito, um, for Seca is his real name. But they caught Rafa first, as we've seen, and then him right after. And it showed on, like, right after that, everybody else just got to ignoring them. They were still protecting Miguel Felix because he stayed out for four years. But those two, they had to basically put a face with everything that happened, and they got those two. But they stay on, even when they went to prison, they were able to still, like, live like royalty in there and get taken care of. One of the guys in there, Horch, Horch the, the guy with, the, like, the police, uniform on in the documentary he ended up serving three years when he was captured and he was captured with um don nito 
And the other two cops, they stayed on the run until they met up with who, with Hector, who Hector Boreas, who made this documentary. When he recruited them, he gave them like full immunity to tell the truth. And that was in 1989. So like this is just coming from everything firsthand who saying they were there and huh, it just gets really deep. And then the bone chilling part was episode four. And they imply that, you know, all of the war on drugs was basically a cover-up. Like, it was really never a war on drugs. And they show real footage of the court hearings in 1987 and how it's all tied to the Contra War, the war in Nicaragua. They talk about how our CIA had something to do with it. And he used the alias Max Gomez. And they get to mentioning, they get to showing real pictures on how he was so involved with everything. They get to implying that somebody who worked in um, K. Moreno's office, remember they say it was very, it was just a small office, a few people over there, they implied that he took money, and one of the guys talked about how um, they were beating him, like, we offered you money, and he, K. Moreno was yelling, I didn't get any money, so they tried to, you know, they implied that someone in the office must took money, and they met up with them, and told when he was going to come out of the, the office, where to find him at, very, very, bone chilling a very emotional documentary i cried both times i watched it um because it's very sad it's very sad um hector he was very involved he just you know and then like i have to say it was more like a brotherhood with the dea they were new Nobody took them serious. Nixon created them in 73. This happened in 80. So they were like not even a full 10 years old. And uh, they pretty much, when I listen to, because um, I've watched a lot of Javier Pena and uh, Steve Murphy interviews as well. And they still take this murder to heart because this was one of their own. And this is what woke a lot of people up to where they didn't mess with them. And this what, you know, made them woke up to you don't mess around with the DA and to see how this was just covered up and a lot of people who were supposed to get in you know just walked away and just to see it was just like a slap in the face to them um I wanted I've seen so many interviews with Javier Pena I wanted to see their reaction to this documentary and I've watched all of their interviews that's how I know so much about you know their side of narcos because that was their story with with Pablo I wanted to get their reaction to this but they said like I heard them talk about the show and they were saying even watching it they couldn't stomach to watch it because this to this day what happened to them is still gut-riching to them you know and Hector Bereas he was he's very fierce to make this documentary it was very powerful and he said he just felt betrayed because it was like nobody wanted him to solve it and every time he he basically solved the case and when he would give evidence they would just um say no further investigation at this time and cover it up and they told him to go you know bring the doctor because it was a real doctor over there and Every time Kiki Camarano kept passing, he would, you know, put adrenaline and give him medication to wake back up to keep him from dying. And when he got him over to the U.S., they, it was under, you know, his orders from his boss. They told him it was kidnapping and the, the Mexican government was not happy with that. And our government ended up apologizing and they sent him back. And he was in trouble and had a warrant out for years for his arrest for kidnapping, even though he was doing his orders of his job. So he said, you know, he always kept quiet, but now he, you know, the warrant has expired. So he's telling his story. Um, so if you guys haven't watched this, please watch it. Um, if you're really into this stuff like I am, he is on, he has a few interviews on YouTube. The best one I've seen has been on Zayutainment's channel and he retired in 1996 and he's telling this story. And like I said, this doc just was, it was, it was shaky. You know, it was really, really shaky. We'll cover more of the real characters um, as far as like a model and all of them, the Lord of Skies in season two. But I don't want to like talk so much about season two and we haven't covered it yet. I want to like go over that detail by detail. But 
like I said, this was very chilling. It was good to see the real pictures of um, the real people involved. Like even like with the Sammy guy who was the cop who the who who was Donito's driver. We seen he looked totally different. Rafa Kara looks totally different on how they portrayed him. They did a really good matchup with um, Miguel Felix, but this doc, it was, it was. They made even uh, Jaime look crazy. Uh, Jamie, Jaime, they made him look crazy on how when they arrested um, the guy who, he remember he was the powerful nephew, become, come to find out he was a, he was the powerful nephew in a show, but come to find out he was the brother-in-law of the guy who was protecting Miguel Felix. He even um, denied that he was a drug uh, smuggler at one of the court hearings. And they were saying like, how are you going to be a boss and deny that? Like they made it seem like it was, um, you know, everybody knows about like the CIA that's in all these documentaries they have out now. They show that a lot in Snowfall and we'll cover that when we get to talk about that. I have another doc I want to mention with that. Um, we, I've seen the hearings with the Contra War. That was in 1987. That's all on YouTube. I sat and watched the whole inner, the whole court hearings of that. And we see the same guys in there. They show clips of that in the documentary as well. So it just showed you on how deep this stuff went and how, you know, Hector Bereas found out too many inf too much information. And then they say how a lot of the, um, Kiki Camarena was never like when they plan to kidnap him. He's put in here that it was basically supposed to just get the information. They weren't supposed to kill him and how this was bigger than the cartel, basically like basically the cartel took the fall because he stumbled unknowingly on more information. And it all dealt with this war that caused the so-called war on drugs in America. So I hope you guys enjoyed my review. I try not to keep you guys too long um, because this podcast will be a little bit over an hour, <laughs> but if you um listen in, you know, just you can take breaks and just come back where you left off at. But I did want to get as much information as I could in here because we did cover two of them, but I don't want to keep you guys too long. Please go check it out. We'll talk more about different little things as we're breaking down season two as well. I hope you guys enjoyed this. And on that note, it's your girl Shanice and I'm out. Thank